Okay, now you're probably like, what is this big plant that Emily has brought up here? Well, I love this time of year, if you know me, right? Because the garden is in full bloom. Rachel's veg are going crazy. We've been having entire meals out of the garden of like potatoes and tomatoes and kale. We had a patapan. Um, I don't remember. We've had, we've had a whole bunch of different things this week, and it's been so great. My purview is more over in the flowers. And so this is the time of year. If you're a flower gardener, you know you're kind of doing some editing. You're trying to decide what things you're going to let go to seed and what you are not. So poppies are one of my favorite flowers. And I know that they're invasive here, but I've got them in a contained area, so we don't have to worry about them going all out. But they're really papery. They produce tons and tons of flowers. And so I end up having to, like, you know, you deadhead flowers, right, to keep them flowering. And so you have to do that almost every day. I've had a few of them that really, really kept going. But at a certain point, they get a little bit frustrated with me deadheading them, and they're like, let me put my energy into producing some seeds, please. And so the one that was next to this, I actually just harvested all the seeds from. But this one here was like, you can see it's starting to turn brown, and it's like, either pull me or let me do my thing. And so as I pulled the one that was beside it, as I let it get really, really... Um, I let it use all of its energy, so hopefully the seeds will be really good. I found myself just kind of looking at it and doing a sort of prayer, just based on what I was, you know, doing naturally in my garden, right? It's like, God, just show me how to use my energy right now. You know, plants have limited energy. They can only, like, grow their roots or create flowers or seeds, and they're pretty, like, segmented in how they do that. So I was like, Lord, just show me. How do I spend my energy? Is it time for me to grow new flowers? Is it time to store up seeds for a new season? Just, I don't even know what it means in a metaphorical sense. Just, just guide me. And I'm sure that many of you have experienced this, right? Just letting nature be your guide for your prayers or for your thoughts. And this natural way of thinking is how we practice contemplation. It's as simple as that. Right? So to contemplate just means to look at something thoughtfully. And that might imply that it has to be only visual, but I think it's actually more encompassing and more inclusive than that. Right? It's using whatever senses are available to us to consider really deeply what it is at hand in front of us. So in the Christian tradition, we've got a 16th century mystic named St. Ignatius. He's the guy that founded the Jesuit order of monks in the Catholic tradition. And the Jesuits are known for being very practical. Right? So St. Ignatius talked about contemplation as praying either through your thoughts or through your imagination, just as you notice things around you, as you notice nature, and then reflect on what it is that you're seeing or experiencing. And so this sort of wondering through the day, right, just as, as we're going about our, our work week, right, if you're looking outside from a window at work and looking at a tree, or as you're maybe taking a run, St. Ignatius says if we just kind of look at things and take a moment to really be present and notice them, he calls that being a contemplative inaction. Right? That's one of the things I like about the Jesuits. Just practical, right? Let's just be a contemplative inaction. He's like, look, not everybody can be a monk or a nun. Right? We've got jobs and we've got tasks and we've got families. We don't very often have time to just sit and like, look at nature for hours unless we're camping or we're on vacation, and we all love that. But just in our everyday life, that can feel like a lot of pressure. It's really a little bit un, um, not attainable. So being a contemplative in action is a way to sort of integrate this contemplation into our everyday lives, just when we're taking a moment to pause, to behold, to reflect, 
And then just offer that reflection as a prayer to God, however you understand God. And sometimes that prayer that we're offering is simply something that's just as simple as wow. Or it's a prayer of thanksgiving, right? It's just thank you, God, for that really glorious pine tree that I see on my way to work every single day. Or sometimes we offer questions, right? I think sometimes nature can lead us to ask some of the most difficult questions. Now, Rachel had told me a story from her childhood. She had a St. Bernard named Heidi, and she remembers one time just watching Heidi play with a frog. And it was lovely, like play, 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 and you've got this big, giant dog and this little tiny frog, and it seems lovely, and then all of a sudden, chomp. <laughs> and you're contemplating, you're like, what is that about? <laughs> right? Why is there so much violence in the natural world? And why does some life seem to require violence to endure? Like, help me understand. I know I've been praying a lot of those similar questions lately, because Rachel and I have been dealing with our cat, Obi-Swan Kenobi. And he's, in the last couple of months, he's transitioned to being an indoor-outdoor cat. And so I feel like no matter how many bells we put on him, you know, we've been getting these little things with bells, like he's ditched three of them in two months. Um, and so I just keep ordering, you know, <laughs> just keep a flow of order of, of collars and bells. But no matter how many bells we put on him, he's bringing far, far more creatures home than I would want. We've actually interrupted two squirrel deaths this week alone. And so I'm just contemplating him. He's, he's stretched out on the patio this week, you know, showing his belly and just being all cute. But I'm looking at him, and I'm like, okay, little guy, you have plenty of food. We feed you more than what you need. So, like, why is this instinct so prevalent in them? Like, God, what is that about? And I would say that if any pastor or theologian tells you they have a satisfying answer to those questions, I would not believe them. Right? It's one of those things I think, okay, maybe one day if I'm standing in front of the Creator, I will ask and have a chance to perhaps understand. But for now, I think I just have to take it that the wisdom gained in asking those questions is in realizing that there are some questions that have no satisfying answers in this present age. Right? And that the pursuit of trying to find something certain or something that explains all is just going to be a frustrating pursuit. So in the Hebrew scriptures, observing nature and, and wondering over it is talked about as being the key path to becoming wise. Right? And so they tell a story. Once upon a time, there was a king. His name was Solomon. And King Solomon was said to be the wisest man on earth. This is from 1 Kings 4. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, largeness of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of all the people of the East and all of the wisdom of Egypt. In other words, all of the known world. This guy is the wisest. And what made him wise? It says Solomon spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs numbered 1,005. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of walls. He also spoke about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. And from all the nations, people came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Right? So the wisest man in all of the world, they say. And what it was that made him wise, they said it was knowing proverbs, right? kind of pithy sayings, lots of songs. How many of us love music? I know I do. Right? Writing them, singing them, thinking about them, and then being able to talk about the natural world. Right? And we know that wisdom is different from knowledge. Right? Solomon was wise, and wisdom is different from knowledge. 
And I think all of us in here can probably name people who like, know a lot of facts, but who utterly lack wisdom. You know, if you've had people in your life, you're like, you are so smart and so foolish sometimes. Because, you know, just spouting off information about plant names and systems, that's not what was that made Solomon wise. It was how he wrestled with the questions as a result of that pondering of nature and music and proverbs, right? It's thinking about things that don't have answers and considering beauty, right, which is subjective and not that easily definable. So it was how he wondered, right? It's allowing the mind to stretch so that we can marvel and be curious and find those gray areas where things are unknown or maybe even just unknowable. And anybody can do that, right? We don't have to be a biologist or even a gardener to be a contemplative in action, right? And that's part of the spiritual path of becoming wise. So I had mentioned at the beginning of this sermon series that I was lightly using a book called When God Was a Bird by Mark Wallace, who's a professor of religion and environmental studies at Swarthmore. And so in that book, Mark Wallace was inviting us to consider an idea about God that is, I think, ultimately unknowable. Right? It's an unknowable thought. And so what he's doing is he's asking how our orientation toward the natural world might be different if God was, in fact, a bird. And so I know probably most people didn't read it, and I was actually reading it as I was doing the sermon series, so some of it was a little surprising to me. And so the first part of the book... I was like, oh, he's actually spending the first part of this actually trying to convince us that in the Bible, God is an actual bird. And I think maybe, right, trying to convince us that God incarnates in a bird body the same way God incarnates into Jesus, so that this idea is that in the Trinity or in this concept of God that Christians have, there's like the essence of the creator, there's human, and there's animal. I think it's a really cool idea, but it's ultimately unknowable. Right? So personally, I was a little less interested in that question of like trying to prove it using the Bible. But what was more interesting to me than just trying to make a case for it was asking these questions. One, is there space for considering it in our tradition without feeling like we have to prove it? And then two, does allowing for that possibility actually help us in any kind of practical way? Right? And so the first question, is there space for considering it? I think there is, and we've been unpacking that over the course of the series, right? We've been talking about how every way we talk about God is metaphor, right? That there are limits to human knowledge and human language, and so every way we talk about God is ultimately metaphor. And we've talked about how we do have stories that are depicting aspects of God as a bird, even in texts that are not written as poetry or myth. I think there's even a good case in the Gospels with Jesus' baptism to say maybe God actually did incarnate into a bird. And there's more allusions to it in Scripture that we could spend time on. And the third thing is, is that Scripture has a diversity of opinion about how God relates to nature. Right, so the, the Bible talks about the natural world, created order, outdoors, as being the temple of God. Right? You can make a case that all of Genesis is all a creation story about the building of the earth as God's temple and the humans as the priests in that temple. And once you see that metaphor, it's actually throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Right? So the idea is the earth is sacred space where God indwells and we walk with the divine. 
So God inhabits and dwells in the natural world, but also there's a case to be made in Scripture that God holds all of creation inside of God's self, right? That God is one with nature, and we are one with God, and we are one with nature, that it's all connected. But also, in Genesis, there's an argument to be made that the Scripture is saying that God is separate from creation, right? In the, in the first creation stories, that they're actually kind of arguing against some of the other... Um, cultures around us saying, well, you say God is the sun or God is a tree, and we're saying God is actually separate. That's there. And yet, every part of creation also seems to be fair game to be infused with the divine, right? From pigeon doves to burning bushes and plant life to humans to the bread and the wine of communion, right? The wheat and the grapes and the food that we intake into our bodies. And certainly the New Testament writers talk about the, our bodies then becoming this earth temple of God, that we are the garden that is locked up. All right, so all of this stuff, it's just imaginings of how to describe the indescribable. And it's just humans trying to talk about how connected everything is and how we really can't put God in a box and think that we've suddenly become experts about like where God is located or how God interacts with us and what we can see, right? It's like, is God nature? Is God separate from nature? Is God in nature? Is nature in God? And the answer is yes. You can find support for all of that. So is there space for wondering about God being a bird or any kind of animal? I think yes. And the second question, does allowing for that possibility help us in a practical way? Right? I'm a pastor. I want to know what, what does this do for us? And I think this does help us. And the reason is this, is that Christianity became particularly hostile to any hint of animism during the early colonial period. Right, so animism, what we're talking about, there's this idea that the divine spirit, the creator, could infuse or animate an animal or a tree or any other part of the creation. And Christianity became especially hostile to that during the colonial period. And the reason was is because many of the indigenous cultures around the world were incorporating animism into their belief systems. And so defining against that became a way to assert difference and dominance, right? It was a way to say, well, that, that's pagan. And we, we have a more sophisticated Christian practice and belief that elevates humans over nature and over other people, right? Especially white Western Christians. And so asserting this more civilized and sophisticated religion justified Western Europeans in conquering and colonizing 80% of the world's landmass by the beginning of World War I. And that might, that might seem a little bit like out of our purview. I mean, we know that there is modern empire and colonialism, but just 100 years ago, 80% of the world was under the jurisdiction of white Western European nations. So how do we know if something is of God, a theology? The Apostle Paul tells us to look at the fruit in Galatians, right? Look at the fruit. What are the outcomes of a particular thought or theology? And so I think we can ask, what has come out of the theologies and the beliefs that emphasize this white Christian dominance over the beliefs of indigenous people groups and the rest of nature in the name of God? And what is the result of dismissing any whiff of animism? Well, the results have been the exploitation of much of the world's land and people, the genocide of entire people groups all over the world, including in North America, and now the ongoing ransacking of the world's natural resources for money, right? So that's not just because of bad theology. It's a lot more complicated than that. 
But it's not not because of bad theology, if you follow me. Right? A lot of the theology is used to justify the sacredness of other systems that are also not producing good fruit. And so maybe it's worth trying on some other theology for size and seeing if the fruit helps humans and the creation to thrive. And so maybe it's worth considering that God could be an actual bird. You know, maybe the, one, the blue heron that I go and I see almost every day on my walk and I look for down at Riverside Park. It's magnificent. Maybe not every bird, but any bird. And maybe if we look at each plant and animal as containing the potentiality to be like a hot spot for the divine, maybe that could influence how it is that we treat them and even how we treat the rivers and the air. So in the Bible, even the rocks are imagined as being able to cry out to God. Right? Maybe as we go about our week, we could imagine various birds that we see as containing God's presence. Or if that feels a little weird, I don't know if my mom's online or not, but I could see my mom being like, Emily, that's just a little bit far. <laughs> Love you, mom. Um, <laughs> maybe just imagine them as a teacher, right? Allow your, your imagination to help you be a contemplative in action. Right? Look at a bird and just be like, what, what would it mean if the divine presence was actually in there? What, what does that look like? What is this bird doing? What does, it, does it say anything about life to me right now? Or is it just maybe beautiful and, and the creation and revealing the beauty of the creator? And so that's what I want you to take away from this series, I think. It's just this idea that maybe, just maybe things are a little bit more interconnected and maybe we could give ourselves some space to look at the divine world as being infused with the presence of God, and maybe we would allow that to affect how it is that we think about animals and plants and the earth around us, and try and restore some of what's, what's been harmful and what's been lost in some of our theologies. All right, so with that, we're just gonna take, we usually take a minute or two of silence or guided meditation, and I wanted to invite us to just meditate on one of these phrases that was in 1 Kings about King Solomon, because I found it kind of interesting. So I might just get comfortable, take a couple deep breaths, and I'm going to offer this phrase and just see whatever your imagination or wherever your thoughts go with this. It says that Solomon had largeness of mind like the sand on the seashore. And I think I would offer that as a prayer. Spirit, could you help us to have largeness of mind like the sand on a seashore? We'll just spend a moment or so thinking through that. Spirit, teach us to be wise. 
give us eyes to notice and be present in moments just in our everyday where we can look at different animals and plants and the rivers and streams around us and see your beauty. Help us be inspired to that wow or to questions where we say, I don't know, and I may just never know. I ask that you would yeah, just lead us and guide us in this path to being wiser humans. We thank you. We thank you for your divine presence in everything. And we thank you that we don't know everything. We look to you for guidance. Amen.